Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Well, we're in this series called Come and Worship. It's our second week, and today we're going to talk about move. Move. God is moving in our hearts with worship. He wants us to, to be drawn to Him. He wants us to be drawn into His presence. And He wants us to, to just give up all this thing that we're thinking about all the time, about what that person thinks, or even what I think about myself, and just if, with reckless abandonment, come before Him with open arms and with open hearts and with abandonment to reputation and everything else that you surrender and worship to Him. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to, we're going to look at a passage that most of you know already, and it's in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So you can turn in your Bibles in front of you, or you can turn in your, your phones, or it's going to be up on the screen as well. We're going to start at verse 14. So David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And this has been a long time coming. Do you remember that story of Uzzah? He reaches out and tries to balance the Ark because the oxen stumbled and he is afraid that the Ark was going to fall off. And then Uzzah is struck dead. Do you remember that story? Well, it's like three months then that the, the Ark of the Lord is put in somebody else's house. And David is kind of angry with God. He's like... That's not fair. Why would you do that? And if you do that kind of thing, who can actually come before you? And it, we don't see how David made this kind of transition. But it was three months, I'm sure, of just kind of shaking his fist at the Lord and saying, this is not right. What do I do with you, God? What do I do with you? And here we see just this expression of abandonment to self. Of abandonment trying to control God or figure God out. And David, with the ark going before him, comes into Jerusalem this way. He's wearing a linen ephod. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David or Jerusalem, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person and the whole crowd of it the Israelites. Now that's pretty significant. That's something we can take from this passage too. You don't just bless people and have them go home empty-handed. David blesses them and he follows it up with something physical, something they could take with them. We say, well, that wasn't very much, a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. That was significant for every person in Israel to get this from the king, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. And when David returned to his home, so he sent them off with a blessing to their homes. And their hearts are full. And they had this wonderful expression of worship that their king humiliated himself in front of them. And, and in a way they said, wow, he's just like one of us. If the king can dance like that before the Lord, if the king can be undignified like that before the Lord, certainly we should be undignified before the Lord. And they went home full 
not embarrassed of their king, but they went home full, relating to their king and relating to their God more than they had probably in a long, long time. But when David comes to his home, does he receive blessing? He returned home to bless his household. Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. (laughs) Hello, honey, I'm home, you know. My goodness. And David replies to her because he's not going to let her, even his wife, steal his blessing that he encountered in the presence of the Lord. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. Michal, if you, you haven't seen anything yet, if you're embarrassed about me now, you're going to be really embarrassed about me later because you haven't seen anything yet. And I will be humiliated even in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. This is the word of the Lord. Praise His name. Do you dare to be undignified? That's what the Lord is asking us. Do we dare? Do we dare to be undignified? Not just in participating in a crowd, but to stand up perhaps by yourself in a crowd with your reputation and with your dignity on the line. How undignified will you become for the Lord? You see, true worship always forgets itself. Always forgets itself. The word hallelujah that we just sang by the praise team that that led us so well. Hallelujah is often used in worship. It's a combination of words. Hallel is, is one of the words and Yah is the other word. Hallel often is defined as praise. And Yah, it's, it's got its roots in Yahweh. Praise the Lord. It's become a universal word in the church. Wherever you go, hallelujah. It's really not, you know, an English word. It's, it's really not a, um, you know, a Spanish word. It's, it's, it's kind of its own category, isn't it? And it means praise the Lord, and everybody knows it. that's what it means. But if we pull that part, that word apart a little bit more, the word hallel doesn't just mean praise. It does mean that. But it means something even more literal. It means to clamor foolishly and mad before the Lord. To clamor foolishly and mad before the Lord, just like David. That he was dancing and clamoring about, and for some people looked at him and said, wow, what a fool. He's king. He doesn't have to do that. What's he doing? Like Michal, his, his wife. So undignified, doing things that he really doesn't have to do. He could have shown his worship in a more reserved way. That was not dignified. But hallelujah, the word itself is not meant to be dignified. It's meant to be, to be abandoning yourself and what people might think of you or might, what you might even think of yourself. We did this whole thing this, this, uh, this summer about identity found and about your ego. It's letting go of your ego. It's letting go of what people might think about you before the Lord. And 
and you're finding, you're not losing in that. You're losing yourself, but you're gaining so much in his presence because he fills you when you surrender that way. And it's a process. It's not something that happens overnight. But when was the last time your heart was so moved to worship that you became undignified before the Lord? Now maybe some of you here think that when people worship with outward demonstration, they're trying to draw attention to themselves. I know that's what I grew up with, and that's a little bit more of a, a mindset that I grew up with, that those people that maybe raised their hand and stuff, oh, they're just trying to draw attention to themselves. Now, Michal thought that about David, too. So as we read this story, and when I read this story a long time ago, I was very convicted by that, that Michal thought that David, he, he's not doing it the right way. There's just, again, no need for him, especially as king, to act so undignified. Sherry and I have worshipped in many churches around the world, many different cultures. We've seen people dancing before the Lord with chairs on their head. We've, we've heard people do war cries during worship. We, we've seen it all. We've seen people bowing down and writhing on the ground. And it was like, oh, this is, this is almost too much. When we first got married, we went to an inner city church. Uh, that's an African-American church. And the first Sunday we were there, they had these ladies up front that were, were waving banners. They ran back and forth and were doing banners. And this was something that being raised in the Christian Reformed Church is not something we did very often. Or never, like never. And so I'm like, whoa. And I was like so distracted by that. I thought, man, what is the deal with that? Are they just trying to draw attention to themselves? But we kept going and week after week, these ladies kept doing these banners. And, and I just, I watched them. And week after week, I was drawn in to their abandonment to self. And I became a little bit envious of that. Because I had layers upon layers upon layers that kind of had trained me. You sit still and be quiet. You, you don't do that. You don't draw attention to yourself. And I looked at them, I thought, wow. They don't care what people think about them. They certainly don't care what I think about them. And this isn't about me. And they know that. That's not about me or what I think about them. They are worshiping God. And so I learned, and I, I learned to, to kind of see that differently. And from that day forward, I, I, I didn't start waving flags around when I worshiped. I didn't do that. But I did understand more deeply the freedom God wanted me to have as I worship Him. Not just in church, but throughout the week. And step by step, I began to learn and practice what it looked like for me to worship God with that kind of heart and mindset. David's response in this passage comes from a heart that understood whose opinion was first in his life. And who would be worshipped no matter what status David achieved. God was going to be first. God would be worshipped no matter what that did to his reputation. And David's realization that this is just the beginning. I don't just wave a flag and say, okay, I did it. Woo. I, 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 I reached the pinnacle of worship. Now I can kind of pull it back a little bit. David's like, you know what, Michal, I'm going to be more undignified than this. This is just the beginning because worship is a progression of going into the presence of God and always drawing closer to Him and always becoming more and more open to Him and always being more abandoned to self. His trajectory was to become more undignified 
more undignified in the eyes of others. And he was to set an example of humility before the Lord. Now, certainly there are, in, there are instances of people who may want to draw attention to themselves or who are kind of out of their skin, so to speak. You know, they're, they're not like that during the week at all. They're not expressive at all. And then on Sunday, it's like, what? And who are you? You know, that type of thing. Certainly there are examples of that. Maybe jumping their temperament because they think that's the right way. Pentecostals have this cultural expectation they try to live into. It's only real, you know, if I'm speaking in tongues. It's only real if I'm really demonstrative in my worship. Dutch Reformed people have cultural expectations too. They try to live into. In either case, we want people to have freedom from those expectations. And sometimes, like Michal, we wrongly assume why people worship expressively before the Lord. So why not give people the benefit of the doubt and let God work in them if they are out of alignment? And so we may say, okay, I can, I can do that. I can give people the benefit of the doubt and not judge them. But that doesn't mean I'm going to worship that way because I don't want people thinking that of me. And that's when we go off the rails into caring what people think way too much and worrying about our reputation way too much rather than letting ourselves go in the presence of God. Some people are just stuck. I often find myself stuck. I'm stuck. My God, I know. I know I can't go backwards. But I don't feel like I'm moving forwards in freedom and adoration of who you are with reckless abandonment to self. And sometimes I don't even realize this until maybe I get out of my culture and then and in another culture, I'm like, wow, why don't why don't I let God do that in me more in the culture that I'm in? And so there's a choice that I find that I continually have to make. It's between this, either justify that I'm okay, largely based on my surroundings, how, uh, how I was raised and how other people are worshiping. I, I can really rationalize that and justify that and say, that's why I don't worship like this or like that. And I'm, I'm okay. I'll just kind of worship in here. Or I can continue to step out and move and stretch and understand how we're meant to love God and freedom of expression and worship. Those are choices that I always have to make, and so do you. Think about how expressive people get at sporting events. Some of these believers would never think about being that expressive in worship. And why is it then that some people are more passionate around around other things like events like sporting events than with their worship centered on God? We know it's in them. We've heard them yell at the referees, right? We know they're passionate. We know they can express their emotion. We've seen that demonstrated. Why is it that we don't do that in worship? Please don't hear any condemnation in this at all. At all. Because we kind of get in this place without even realizing we got here. You know what I mean by that? You just kind of, this is what you do. This is how you worship. And then pretty soon it's like, yeah, I, I don't think there's any other way that would be more expressive that I really need to do. Is that necessary? And 
And pretty soon, without even realizing it, we got a very narrow way of what, how, we, how we think we should worship God. So fast forward a thousand years from the time of David. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And he's celebrating as, he's celebrated as the long-awaited Messiah. This Messiah is somebody they've been waiting for because of the oppression of Rome. And they wanted somebody to free them from that. And so Jesus is coming in and he's riding on a colt. What a humble thing. They would have probably liked it a lot more if he was riding a white horse. But he's riding a colt and he's coming in and the people are going crazy. And, and the disciples have stirred up the crowds. And worshiping and praising and singing, Hosanna, save us now, Hosanna. And the Pharisees. The Pharisees are very well intended. You have to see this as part of the story. These, these aren't just joy killers intentionally. They have a very good intention based on what had happened in the past. They're saying, guys, Jesus, quiet your disciples. Quiet them down. You know what's happened in the past that Rome's come in with their armies when things have gotten out of hand like this and they've squished the, this uprising, this worship. And many people died. The Pharisees we're looking out for the people on one hand. But they were also looking out for themselves on the other hand. This is Jesus, quiet them down. Quiet them down. Have them not be so expressive, so loud. This is not going to end well. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he says something that riles them up even more. He says, you know, they have to do this. In fact, it's not even enough. Because of who I am, if you knew who I was, you would be encouraging them to do it even more. Reckless, wild abandonment to self over praise to the king. And Jesus says, if they don't do this, the rocks will cry out. Has it, who's been to Israel before? Yeah, good. It's, it's kind of grassy knolls, isn't it? And just, you know, open meadows with grass. There's, is it like that? No, there are rocks everywhere. I mean, you can't walk a foot without stumbling over a rock. Can you imagine the noise if the rocks would cry out? So Jesus is saying this in the context of Jerusalem, and there's rocks everywhere. And he says, if they don't do this, the rocks are going to cry out. It's a pretty amazing statement. And he riles up the crowd even more. Now, let's not misunderstand structure. Structure is good. We do more planning and structuring of our services than you will ever see. A lot goes into every piece of it. And that will increase as we go into the fall with our two campuses, North Campus at 10 and South Campus at 8.30. There's a lot more planning that's got to go into that. So structure is good. But structure shouldn't be allowed to strangle life, just as religion must never be allowed to dampen romance. And after all, this is about relationship with our God. It's a romance with Him. So what happens in a church service when people misinterpret the value of doing everything decently and in order. What happens when that gets misinterpreted in Scripture? Well, it can lead to an unemotional response. 
Sit still and be quiet. Now, this has been learned. Sit still and be quiet. And it's hard to be unlearned. I had three peppermints to get me through church every Sunday morning. Three. And I had to ration them to make sure that at the really boring times, I'd, I'd, you know, put the peppermint in. Sometimes I'd break them in half, so I'd six, six. But I knew that one of the overarching goals was for me to sit still and be quiet. Sit still and be quiet. Now, I still can't figure out how pinching kind of goes into that equation because you can't sit still and be quiet when you're pinched, right? seems counterproductive. But I had three peppermints. Now, I'm not saying listening is not a value, okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying here. We do have to teach our kids to listen to people, to engage, to, to make sure that they have their ears open, to learn to, you know, to, to, to be in a crowd, in a, in a crowd of people, and that where their place is in that. I, I totally agree with that. But in that, we've we got to make sure that our kids don't think church is just about sitting still and being quiet. We inadvertently communicate something to them when we want them to, to understand worship, this reckless abandonment to self, to, to express and to be creative and, and to engage with our heart, soul, and strength. And then, of course, listening to the pastor, too, of course. But we want it to be interactive, don't we? Because that's how people learn. That's how people grow. We don't want our kids just to grow up thinking, sit still and be quiet. And that's it. Now, again, I'm a huge advocate for teaching people that when somebody in the room is talking, you give them their attention. That's respect. That's honor. When I was a teacher in the classroom, I'd have open parent night, and they'd bring their students, and we'd go through kind of the, the classroom management, the structure, what they can anticipate for the semester. And you know who were the worst people in the room who didn't listen at all? The adults. The kids would be kind of focused, like, okay, what am I going to have to do? I gotta... The parents were just kind of talking in the back of the room. Blah, 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 blah. What, I'm saying, what I'm saying is much more important than what he's saying. You know, you know. It's like, what, what did the kids learn from this? Yeah, you know, apple tree, apple tree, you know, that type of thing. So we have to teach our, our kids to respect and to listen. At the same time, we don't want them just to sit still. And be quiet. So if we know this passion to move and worship is, is in us at various levels and demonstrated in various temperaments. And if we know we're supposed to have structure but not let it strangle life out of worship. What's the goal? What are we aiming at? Well, this is the time to bring out the golf club. You golfers out there. I really don't know what I'm doing. But. This is my golf club. So when I first held a golf club, I played a lot of baseball when I was a kid. And my dad took me golfing. And so the first swing looked something like this. And, and it, it kind of started going down to here. And then it started going, and it kept on having this around thing like the baseball swing. It felt so awkward, so awkward to swing a golf club. And the, the, the more I did it, the more I practiced, and the more I swung, trying to get away from that baseball swing, well, my golf game didn't improve, but that's where the metaphor breaks down. But um, the idea was that the more you do it, over and over, the less awkward it feels. 
Now, it still feels awkward to me once in a while to swing that club. Freedom of expression. Sometimes in worship still feels a little awkward to me because I wasn't raised that way. I was raised to sit still and be quiet and, and don't draw any attention to yourself. And so this habit of swinging in worship, of movement, after a while you keep doing it and it doesn't feel quite as awkward. And you find in that that you start to get a little more freedom. You're cultivating a habit, just like other things we practice, to, to feel more comfortable doing it. So you keep doing it. Think about the Father's love for you. Now this is getting at the aim. What is the aim here? Is the aim just to, just to swing? Is the aim just to, to raise your hands? Is the aim just to be more demonstrative in worship? Think about the Father's love for you. So extravagant is His love that, that you can't demonstrate and reflect that awesome love in any other way except just reckless abandonment to self. Think about how He demonstrated His love to you with reckless abandonment all the way to the cross. Our only response can be worship from this full heart that centers on God alone with abandonment to ourselves and what others think. Freedom before the Lord. Reckless adoration. So, hear me when I say this. Goal is not to raise your hands or bow down or cry out or any of those things. Just as the goal isn't getting really good at swinging or really good at the driving range. These are things that help us practice and move forward in freedom before the Lord with ease of movement. You don't even know, some of you, what freedom in worship would look like because you've never tried it. You've never tried to be expressive. You've never tried to do these things. You just said, no, that's not my way. That's your way. That's not true. You might not be somebody that's going to be expressive that way all the time. But do you even have the freedom to be so if you want to? And in that freedom, do others who come in to this assembly have the freedom to do so if they want to? Or is this there a cultural current, an unspoken rule that you just don't do that? That has to be broken in Jesus' name so that people can find freedom to worship. With ease of movement, having a full heart. Jesus says, out of the mouth speaks what the heart is full of, and it's got to be full of Him. And then out of that, our mouth and our expressions and our bodies can be free before the Lord. And the opportunity to express ourselves without concern for what others think and what we ourselves even think about our reputation or what is dignified in order to worship God with reckless abandonment to self is the goal. That's the goal. It's not just about swinging. It's not just about movement. It's about freedom before the Lord. Someone once wrote, love does not stop nicely, at, nicely to calculate less or more. Love does not stop to work out how little it can respectively give. With a kind of divine extravagance, love gives everything it has and never counts the cost. Calculation is never any part of love. 
God certainly never calculated, hmm, I wonder how little I can do for, for, for them to know that I love them. He gave it all. And that's what love is, and that's what he wants us to reflect back to him. Everything. When was the last time you allowed yourself to be surprised and in awe with the unpredictable ways that God's moving? Worship must become a conversation, a moving conversation, not just a review of the past. It must become unpredictable, open-ended, and require movement of your soul. We're going to close with Revelation 2, 2 through 4. We get this picture of Jesus talking to the churches. He shows up. The church has spread all throughout Asia Minor into the ends of the earth, and he shows up in his revelation to John while John's on Patmos. And he says, I know your deeds. This is Jesus speaking. Your hard work and your perseverance. I know you can't tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've forsaken that love you had at first. This picture of Jesus saying, we had this romance, this relationship. You love me with reckless abandonment at first, and now it's gotten calculated. Now it's gotten programmed. It's gotten into the form of religion. I want that relationship back, is what he's saying. I want you to be reckless in your relationship with me. I don't want you to worry all the time about doing it right. I want you to just give all, all to me and let me sort it out. When's the last time you saw somebody who just fell in love? Think about that time. People who first fall in love are weird, right? Remember how weird people get with that, you know? Just all kind of giddy and kind of, even guys, they just kind of get weird in their head. Like, what are you, th- what are you thinking about, man? That's what God wants for you and I. He's given us permission to be weird, to let go, to be in His presence, to move and be free. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. that In Your presence, You give us freedom. It's for freedom that You've set us free. And Lord, that's going to be a progressive thing for many people for all of us really, of how you continue to pull us into your presence, how you continue to to give us permission and freedom to express and to create and to be who you've called us to be in your presence. That in that we, we let go of ourselves. We let go of what people think about us. We let go of all the things that we think this is the way we're supposed to do it. And we let your spirit reign in our hearts, in our souls, and in our minds. And that is when we can worship, when we are totally aligned with your presence and with your, with your spirit. It's about this relationship with you that we so want to have, but sometimes we just don't know how to get there. 
May we surrender. Do the very opposite thing that, that seems, seems reasonable. May we surrender in order to have victory in you, Jesus. May we trust you with our whole lives as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.